Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm personal price plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. Vital Farms keeping it bull free. We always wanted our kids as they were growing up to have stuff that came from the right places. Vital Farms is perfect for this. Here's how good Vital Farms is. You can go to vitalfarms.com slash farm and you can get a 360 degree peek at the actual farm where your eggs came from. Uh, it's a certified B corporation. They are devoted to improving the lives of people, animals, and the planet through food. Great taste. You can do fried, poached, scrambled. Vital Farms bet you can taste the difference. Food simply tastes better when you know where it came from. Shop the farm that's a certified B corporation and gives their hens the lifestyle they deserve. Vital Farms. Look for the black Vital Farms carton in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms. Keeping it bullshit free. The Rewatchables is brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where you can find the big picture with Sean Fennessy. You can find Chris Ryan on the Ringerverse breaking down the Dragon House. Uh huh. Dragon House get renewed for season two by HBO or no? Yeah. Yeah. I and then what's the other one you do? Watch it? Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about that because um, we have a new pricing structure for the watch. If you just want to hear us talk about TV, it's five. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to hear us talk about House of the Dragon, that's dead. Okay, gosh, good to know. Uh, we are, this is this podcast has been around for five years. This is the first time we have ever had a two-part podcast. This is part one, Boogie Nights. Uh, Sean, Chris says you have a great big cock. May I see it? <laughs> Boogie Nights is next! I want you to know I plan on being a star. New Line Cinema presents... Jack Horner, filmmaker, exotic pictures. The Life... Of a dreamer. Oh, these are great. Are they lizard? No, they're Italian. The days of a business. Cut. Terrific. The award goes to Nick Ziegler. And the nights in between. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Stop this part. Official selection of the 1997 New York Film Festival. Boogie Nights. Rated R. All right, Chris and Sean are here. My name is Bill Simmons. This has been my favorite movie of the last 25 years, Boogie Nights. It is my birthday. On, uh, it was already my birthday by the time everybody hears this. This is the, my birthday present to myself, Boogie Nights. I was going to say, it's not your birthday. Yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> You're like, it's my birthday? My wife, I asked her, we've been dating since 1998, a year after this movie came out. Uh-huh. I asked her, what movie Shred have I- carefully. <laughs> <laughs> I asked her, what movie have I watched the most yeah. since you and I started dating? And she said, without missing a beat, Boogie Nights. Okay. <laughs> she was like, Boogie Nights, Cruising. No, she said Boogie Nights. Then she said Shawshank, Godfather. But she was mm -hmm. like, Boogie Nights, by far the most. And then just go with it. 
And just go with it probably fourth. Uh, I just love this movie. I This is the, my first note. The 73-minute stretch. It's 73 minutes exactly. Eddie has the fight with his mom, and he shows up at Jack's house. It's yeah. at the 28-minute mark of this movie. From there, right all the way through, when he sings Feel, the, feel, feel, feel the Heat with Reed. It's my favorite stretch of any movie, probably ever, but definitely in the last 25 years. So I'm starting there. Sean, what's your favorite thing about this movie? It's the funniest, scariest, saddest movie of the last 25 years. Never mm. never had those three things stitched together as perfectly as they are here. You know, this movie still makes me laugh so hard. Yeah. And I've seen it, I don't know, 55, like, 65 times? I mean, it's really in the upper if echelon. If you price in its cable run and it's like omnipresence in our lives for like 20 years where you're just like, yeah, Boogie Nights is just on while I'm doing this. The Michael Penn score that was on the DVD menu screen was basically the soundtrack of every night of my life in college. Mm. Every night I would fall asleep watching this movie. So, it, it and it's still funny, and it's still sad. It's really what about sad. about you, Chris? No movie makes me feel better, and no movie makes me feel worse. <laughs> and no movie makes me feel more young, and no movie makes me feel more old. Like, when you watch this, you know, Anderson has talked about, PT had talked about how it was important to him that the characters only change, like, one degree or two in the movie like the, he's like the the myth of that we're going to go through this profound change is is like that's not actually how it works but the viewer <laughs> goes through this incredible journey like you feel exhausted when this movie is over do you remember seeing it in the theater no i don't i i don't really remember like in the late 90s it was just kind of like it wasn't as like i'm i'm waiting like for friday for when this comes out like i think i was just in college and it just became a part of my life. I couldn't really pinpoint the day I saw it. I did see it in theaters. I saw it sort of like a month or two after the release. Um, but I was 15. And so it didn't have, I didn't have the same level of awareness of like, this is coming in the way that I assume that you did. I saw it in Boston, Massachusetts at the theater that's near the Tower Records on with my friend Jen Morris from college. And we were super excited about it. It had all these people I liked. And there was incredible buzz for PTA as a filmmaker for the film itself. And we went, I just had the best time. Was that the movie theater that was sort of over yeah, it was by like, Copley? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, that's where I saw The Matrix. Yeah. We had the best time. And when he pulled out his dick at the end, it was like, bravo. <laughs> he just fucking landed the plane. It was like, we'd heard rumors that it might come out, but this was 97. It was early internet. And they were still pretty good about keeping secrets. And just that, just that ending and everything about it and the way it ends with the ELO, and it's just like, oh, my God. And we just kind of stumbled out. And I was like, I know that movie's going to be in my life. But then I've talked about this before. I had the illegal ca cable box that my roommate Richard got from Big Al, and then he moved out, left the cable box. And this was on a pay-per-view channel, I think, for like three straight months. And I was doing my website. I was bartending, and it was just on. It was like what you talked about in college. It was just on every day. So I, I got to know all the scenes, all the lines, and then it went on the HBO run for what it felt like was like three years. It just felt like it was on every night at like 11 o'clock at night. You know what I was thinking about? There was like a bunch of bars that Sean and I would go to, specifically library, but like there were plenty of places where in, they would have TVs, but it wouldn't be sports, it would be movies. And sometimes you go in and be like a Bruce Lee movie or whatever, but Boogie Nights was like <laughs> right. one of those movies where you'd like look up and be like, Oh, yeah. even though girl. this is on mute, I'm just gonna watch. We just stop talking. Yeah, we just start watching the movie on mute. I mean, it's it's transfixing. It's so exciting. There never been a movie quite like it. 
And especially from, at this point, the cable side, just being able to dive into different parts and be like, oh, cool. He just showed up at Jack's house. I know what I'm doing for the next hour. Put it on at any time. And then the DVD thing was really important with this. The DVD market was pretty new at that point. And this one came out and was immediately like the best DVD anyone's ever made. It had deleted scenes. It had footage. The deleted scenes were good. It had Paul Thomas Anderson just talking over the movie, over the deleted scenes, explaining why he cut stuff. And I, we, we did something at Grantland with House. We did like the 20, my 20 favorite Boogie Nights characters. We did a pod during PTA week. And House, I, heard, I listened to it to make sure we didn't overlap with anything. And House was saying, he would come up, we would go out drinking and he would come up, we would go back to my apartment at like two o'clock and we would just put on from when like, <laughs> like when, uh, you know, he shows up at Jack's house. We would just watch that for an hour and laugh our asses off. I did that last watch night. deleted scenes. I was like, oh, I should rewatch it one more time, like, just to see. And then, like, I was like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start it as he's walking into the party at Jack's house. I only skipped one part. I watched it three times this week. I only skipped one part on my third watch, which was when things really start to fall apart. We get in the back of the limousine with Roller Girl, cross yeah. cut. When it's like the grimmest it is, I'm like, I don't think I need this a third time in five days. But otherwise, <laughs> everything else I wanted to see again. Yeah, you just, these characters, my wife always has that thing about these characters that become your friends, like the 90210 characters, the OC characters, these TV shows. But the Boogie Nights people, I think that's, to me, the legacy of this movie is just how many characters I like. Like, there's like 20 characters that you, they're not even in the movie that much, and you just have a feel for them. So he's going to the PTI history, like the the Altman influence and the stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, the the elevator pitch on the movie... It's so good. It's like if Martin Scorsese and Robert Altman had a baby with a 12-inch dick. Like, it's, so, it's just so, like, how exciting is that as a concept? Um, you know, he's a, a kid from the San Fernando Valley who spent his entire youth desperately wanting to make movies. And he's the son of Ernie Anderson, who's a famous voiceover artist and TV host. The Lobo. Guy who was the voice of ABC for many years. And so he's like a Hollywood kid, but also on the outskirts of Hollywood because he lived in the Valley, which is this sort of like quasi-disreputable, quasi-suburban experience, which he later renders in Licorice Pizza. And Magnolia. Yeah. And Magnolia. And, you know, this is the, the setting of a lot of his movies. But when he was a kid, when he was a teenager, he made a student film, kind of, a personal short film. He's 17. That is a mockumentary about a porn star named Dirk, Dirk Diggler. And that's the germ of this movie and really the germ of his career. And he shot it on video and he starts to figure out how to make movies. And the Colonel was in it. The Colonel was in it. Robert the Colonel Ridgely. plays Jack, Jack Horner. Yeah. Yes. Bob Ridgely. And the guy who goes and sees Buck about the stereo in the beginning is the guy who plays, plays Dirk, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of like, he, if you've ever seen that movie, he does poured over some stuff, but he's also completely reimagined. Yeah. Isn't it, that more like spinal tap kind of like very much, okay. very much so. Um, and it's also like, it's pretty crude. It's not like, so thrilling, but you can see that he has a real sense of humor. And that's the thing that is so great. He's made a lot of movies since then, and a lot of them are funny, but he has gotten, like, The Master is hilarious, but it's a deeply serious movie. Same with Phantom Thread. These are, like, deeply serious Yeah, Phantom stories. Thread's funny, but not, this is, like, Anchorman level this is funny comedy. in a couple spots. Pure yeah. comedy at you, times. You, it's also worth mentioning, you guys have had him on the pod a couple of times in the last few years for, for Licorice and for, what was the it? The Phantom Thread. For Phantom, yeah. Phantom Thread. Yeah. And he's, like, I wouldn't call him it doesn't sound buttoned up, but he's like almost shy, like or a little introverted, and like very like, oh, you guys, like, thanks so much. You know, he's he gotten was, more mysterious the older he's gotten, but which yeah. is usually the opposite. If you listen to him on the director's commentary of this movie, it's like 
true like enfant terrible badass like i know that i have all five tools and i'm like i'm like pretty into like what i made here like and the confidence is what i really think about when i think about this movie is just like imagine opening a movie it's your second movie the first one is well regarded but is certainly not a box office hit by any means you somehow get michael deluca to like fund this thing and you fucking open it up with a three-minute dizzying steady cam shot that's like takes on De Palma and Scorsese and all yeah. the, Max Olfus and all these other people who and you're like all the characters of the movie are pretty much in this shot. I mean, it's just so brazen. It's so cocky. It's yeah. It's it's not confident. It's cocky. It's it's bravado that he brings to the movie, which the movie does demands. Yeah. What other young? So he's in his mid twenties when he makes twenty six. What other filmmakers, what other movies are like this, this where somebody's like, just like, I'm fucking Orson swinging Wells, my dick? Orson Quentin Tarantino, Jean-Luc Godard, like this is... But Tarantino was a little older, though. He was like was 20, he? wasn't he? Yeah, 30? I mean, I think of John Singleton. John Singleton's yeah. really young when he Spike. made Boys in the Hood. Yeah. Spike Lee is really young when he makes She's Gotta Have It. Yeah, Spike's a good one. Sp- Soderbergh was pretty young on Sex, Lies, and Videotape, mm-hmm. He right? was, yep. yeah. Yeah, all these guys, I mean, it's hard to get a movie made when you're in your 20s. It's hard to get people to take you seriously, and we'll talk about how some of his actors maybe didn't always take him seriously. Right. Also, a thing I like about him is I think that a thing that turned people off, which is what you're saying, Chris. He's like, he's like, I've seen every movie and I'm smarter than you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's his whole attitude when he's making movies. He's like, I, I see everything. I know well, everything I Burt want. Reynolds, I don't think he loved it. Definitely not. We'll go into some of the Burt stories. Yeah, he's, even when he's doing the director's commentary and the commentary of the deleted scenes, to me, it's like it sounds egotistical, but he's really not. Like he really loves the movie they made, and he really, really loves the actors. And he loves when they're in character in situations he set up for them, but then they're ad libbing outside the script, and he's just like dying at John C. Riley and yeah. all these different people. He's so delighted that these great actors that he put together are actually taking this in a different direction. Which is, I don't know. That's one of the legacies of the movie to me. It's like amazing filmmaker. He catches all these different actors at the right time. Um, the movie's unlike really any movie that anybody had made to that point. It's got pieces of different things, but there's it's really a one of one at that point. And then on top of it, he's got like this anchorman, Adam McKay type thing going on in the middle of the movie where these people are just, you know, kind of doing their own thing and, and really exploring the studio space with these characters. Yeah, you think about like everything he pulls off, there's a musical sequence, there's the fake docu, there's the documentary, there's the Angels Live in My Town, like credit sequence, like all the flourishes that he does. Yeah, there's a big shoot em up. By the way, Chris, sequence. it's not a documentary, it's Fire and Fire. <laughs> It has a name. <laughs> you treat that documentary with respect it deserves. It's Fire and Fire, the Brock and Chess story. <laughs> I think is what it was called. Based on Exhausted, which one of the crazy things, I mean, PTA, like, I think pretty admittedly, huge porn fan when oh, he was yeah. a kid, right? Fascinated by John Holmes. Owned all of the John Holmes movies or got holds of the cassettes or whatever to the point that he had all of the laser discs of Jade Pussycat that he collected and then he gave out to certain people who he yeah. felt like You're a big it. Jade Pussycat. Who's the Jade Pussycat episode of the show? Pussycat, Chris? Uh, but he, uh, there was this documentary they made about John Holmes called Exhausted, which is one of the funniest things to watch, even if you don't have the Boogie Nights context. It's about this guy, John Holmes, who had the biggest, most legendary penis of the 70s. He's the most famous porn actor we had for the first I like I'm just nodding along. That's years. right, Bill. You're absolutely right. That, that is absolutely true I, about his penis. Tell us more, SG. <laughs> you would describe him. I don't know. He's like the, the Will Chamberlain of porn. Uh-huh. Like He's pushing porn into a whole other level. 
and they decide to make this documentary about him that treats him very seriously. And he's talking very seriously about his craft, but he's a fucking porn actor. And PTA thinks this is the funniest, greatest thing that's ever happened. And this is the genesis for Boogie Nights. He's also talking seriously about like karate. You know, he's like, I'm very good at karate. Yeah. Saying, saying that in his own documentary, which is stuff he's lifting wholesale for the movie. Yeah. All the stuff PTA loves is like in the exhausted, which he steals for the for the movie, he's with this guy, Bob Chin, who's the director. And he starts pontificating about, you know, and Bob lets me block my own scenes. And there's this pause, and Bob's like, I don't let him block his own scenes. And it's like <laughs> it's one for one that in the movie. But that's in Boogie Nights. Where yeah. He's like, maybe take out the like, part where I was talking about blocking my scenes. So in the YouTube commentary he does of Exhausted, he's just like, I took this, see the bar, we captured that exactly. I had to have that clock. Like he loved Exhausted so much, but that's like these filmmakers, you think like, think of the great filmmakers, they're all weird. <laughs> like Spielberg, weirdo as a kid, right? All he wanted to do is he, he saw everything through. They're a obsessed, lens. yeah. They're yeah, obsessed. and this is like the one thing they just want to have a camera and capture. There's people. just like there's there's a group of those of those guys that just seem like the Ken Griffey Jr. type. Like uh, this this dude was just touched by the gods and was yeah. bound to make movies at some point. Yeah, I think I've said this before, but like there's a handful of people from this generation who basically spent their youth inhaling the 70s movies, but, you know, particularly, I think, Fincher, PTA, and Quentin Tarantino, who are probably my three favorite directors, honestly, are perverts. <laughs> they're, like, they're, like, they're perverted. They're, Self like... Self-admitted perverts. Yeah, they, yeah. like, they know a lot about porn. They know a lot about extremely violent movies. They know a lot about what's, like, kind of underneath the surface of people's the desires. Yes. Yeah. And he's, like, what do people really want to see? And... In some ways, like, that seems, I don't know, problematic or whatever, but it's honest about what the human impulse is. And so a lot of those movies are so exciting because it's like, wow, someone finally put it on screen. Someone finally put a crazy movie about porn on screen. We've been waiting a long time for this. And so it feels um, it feels honest because he did spend a lot of time watching porn as a teenager. It's also the the way he conceives of or presents that world on the in the movie like you think about when Jack comes in and introduces himself to Eddie at Hot Tracks and he's like, he's kind. Like he's a really sweet guy. Like yet you could view that as like this corrupting influence on Eddie's life. But how old are you, Eddie? <laughs> I got my papers. Seventeen year old piece of gold. But the porn industry is treated very matter of factly. Like mm -hmm. I think that this is an ex like it's an extension of the fact that PTA was probably just like aware that this was one of the economic drivers of his neighborhood, of, mm -hmm. his, of this place he grew up. Yeah, it wasn't point. like, oh, this is this remarkable, taboo, nobody knows, exotic thing. He's like, no, these are like working people. They have homes. They pay their mortgage. They go to work. They have to raise money to make their movies, just like all independent filmmakers do. Like, there was like a kind of, I think, respect for it, but also like, it just doesn't treat it like a zoo animal. And that's why you can watch this movie so many times, because it's not like really that horny of a movie no it's kind of that's the thing is it's like a comic film you know and it and, and then it turns into a tragedy but all the people in this movie are essentially with a few exceptions sweet you know like they're they're fucked up but a lot of them are very very kind well you mentioned the altman thing and i think that's where the not Al the colonel the but, you know <laughs> the, the yeah. altman and jonathan demi those are kind of his two dual heroes and those guys are really humanist filmmakers. They make a lot of films about yeah. families, yeah. a lot of ensemble movies. They're really interested in the people that are on screen. And like Jonathan Demme could weirdly humanize like Hannibal Lecter. You know what I mean? He had a real gift for looking at people who you think would be depraved. And it, even if you don't love them, you understand them and you're fascinated by them. And 
that's a huge interest of his too. And I think you're right. There's like a real practical workaday quality to the characters in the movies. Like, and everybody is kind of constantly thinking about like the Buck Swope character. The whole movie is basically about his journey to try to get the life that he really wants, which is to sell yeah. stereos. Yeah. Like, that's the whole point of his arc is I, if only I could just transcend my circumstances and just live a happy life with my wife and my kids and sell stereos. And I just want to be a cowboy. Right. I, like, why can't I just do that? One of the DVDs I have, and I had multiple ones, but I went back and I watched it this morning because I was like, I think the deleted scenes in one of them, he has director commentary because they're not on YouTube or anything. And there was director commentary. He said something really interesting. There's this, and we'll go over the deleted scenes in part two because I think they're really important. There's in the New Year's when it turns 1980, Jesse St. Vincent, played by Melora Walters, mm -hmm. is sitting with, with Dirk Diggler. And they're talking and they're kind of like bonding. And this this scene you can find on YouTube, but you can't find the PTA part. And she's kind of talking about her as an actress. And she's like, you know, I have small tits. My pussy's too big. But I just I just feel like, like she's just talking about her career. And they're kind of bonding. And then it cuts to Amber Waves and she's with Scotty J. And Scotty J's doing this like crazy story. He's probably coked up. And I told him, whatever, man. And he's, just, <laughs> he's rambling. And PTA is talking about how much he loves this Phil Hoffman part and how much he loved. It was so hard for him because Phil's his friend to cut this because he loved it. But he's like, I just, I needed to get through 1980. But he's like, the real reason I had to cut this was because I didn't want Jesse talking about her career. I wanted these people to always be like, I'm in this industry. I do my job. I don't ever want them questioning. It was the same reason he got Becky Barnett has that deleted scene where yeah. her husband beats shit out. He, he felt like he had done the ramifications enough, but he didn't want them to be too self-aware about their jobs, which I thought was really interesting. The way only to think time about it, it really comes up for real is, is Amber's custody hearing. And that's what he says. Where He's like, like, I have yeah. the Amber's custody here, so you know the ramifications because she loses the son. And I didn't need to do this. I needed to keep going forward. And he's like, the key is Reed and Dirk. I can't. And we always talk about this like when we had a documentary. It's like your A story, your B story. You want to kind of stay on the highway and you can get off an exit. You can get some gas, but you don't want to go too far off the highway. So th that scene, which is really good, and the Becky Barnett scene is really good, but you go off the highway a little bit too far. Mm -hmm. And it's like, do you need a Jesse backstory? Probably not. I would argue that you do need that Becky scene, and we can talk about that a little later when so we talk I, about I, it. So I agree with you. Um, I do too. And I, I think it's a really well-done sequence in the movie, but that's kind of neither here nor there. The thing that's interesting about that is that a lot of the notes that he was getting from the studio when he was making the movie was all about how they, he needed to narrow, narrow, narrow the story to Dirk and Jack. That this story is about Dirk and Jack. And that PTA's response to that was, this is a story about a family. And mm. all the members of the family matter. And certainly Dirk and Jack are at the center of the story and Reed and Dirk's partnership takes over in the second half of the movie. But if you don't see the tableau, if you don't see everything that happens in the frame of this house and these people's lives, you're not really getting the point of what I'm trying to say, which is like these people really came together for this period in time to make something together, to make an industry, to make movies, to make friendships and family and babies and all these other things. And that that is really what matters in the telling of the story. It's why the movie works. I mean, if the movie was just cool porn star, porn director, and their psychotic relationship, that would be good, but that would feel too much like a Scorsese ripoff. Mm -hmm. This is something different. That guy, uh, Robert Elswit, who I just called that guy, even though he's a fantastic cinematographer. He shot one of the best blood. ever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I apologize. He said, uh, this is what he said about PTA. Paul's movies are really about one thing, families. They're about someone trying to create a family, find a family, get rid of the one they have, create a new one. 
but it's everything everybody is seeking, love, acceptance, redemption. It all happens inside a family. And the family that they try to create in Boogie Nights are these people making these porno movies. It's actually an American backstage musical. There's literally 12 movies like that, and he lists a couple. That's the format of Boogie Nights. And without even really trying to imitate it, it was just part of Paul's DNA. The family thing's kind of stuck with him throughout his career, right? Has there been a movie where that wasn't a theme? I guess. No. Even Phantom Thread, I feel like. like. Inherent Vice a little bit is like, and that's an adaptation, but it's, I mean. Even that movie, though, is about this kind of like loose collective of people who all know each other in the 70s in LA. And, you know, like Doc knows every person he talks to in that movie. Um, Like he wouldn't make Argo, even though Argo is a perfectly... Excellent movie. Even but then, you he probably would have made it even more about, about how he would have made it more about yeah. the hostages, yeah. probably, and like I how did, they turn into this. Like, yeah, that's a good point. He probably would just be able to project that theme onto any movie that he made because it's what matters to him. Would he have made the eleventh Halloween movie? Probably not. <laughs> you know? Maybe that's about family, though. Michael Myers and Laurie. But that's the one. The, the one caveat with somebody who is like as singular as him, who makes only makes things that he really wants to make, and usually it originates with him. Is I do I would like to see his Halloween movie. I mean, that's the one thing you miss out on. Is I just I'd love to see one for hire Paul Thomas Anderson gig. That would be fun. Right. Oh yeah. Well, the same thing for Tarantino though. Same completely. Yeah. That was why when they, there was talk of him doing Star Trek, it was like it oh is, cool. It's also th- there's a sort of there's a flip side to that equation. You know, like watching it later in my life, I am definitely like this guy just fucks his mom. And, like, Amber just fucks her son. Like, it's, like, the Oedipal kind of, like, yeah. urges and the pathologies underneath these people. There's and a lot of religious to, like, shit, too. Yeah, and what they're trying to kind of solve in their broken parts of their, like, soul. And Roller Girl wants on to be Front the mom. Street. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's take a break. There's a lot more to discuss. This episode is supported by State Farm. Think about your first reaction after you have an accident. What do you do? You scream, oh no, or man, oh, why did this happen? On the flip side, let's say you buy a new car or you lease a new car. Get in there and it smells great and you're like, man, this is awesome. But just remember, really the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor. State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need. Have coverage options to protect the things you value most. File claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. Spring comes with a lot of chores because, you know, spring cleaning. One thing you can clean up right away, your phone bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. They have unlimited talk, text, data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. $15 a month. That's like, you can subscribe to two movie channels for that. I mean, what a great deal. Also, super easy to switch plans. Everyone gets so intimidated by, oh my God, I don't know if I should switch my plan. It's not that hard. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash rewatch. That's us. That's mintmobile.com slash rewatch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month for a first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. So we mentioned the characters. I wrote down... 20 characters that I feel like are wholly distinct. And I think this might be the record for a movie. It's really hard to figure out Joey Pants in this movie because 
the the eighteenth the person has a, yeah. a full role. I'll just give you the list: Dirk Diggler, Reed Rothschild, Amber Waves, Buck Swope, <laughs> Buck Swope. <laughs> I don't know how he came up with that name. Jack Horner, the Colonel, Floyd, Roller Girl, Scotty J, Maurice, Becky Barnett. It's one hundred percent chocolate love. <laughs> Jesse, Todd. Parker, <laughs> Rahad, the yeah. Molina character, Dirk's mom, Little Bill, Little Bill's wife, Kurt Little John, <laughs> Cheryl Ann, and Dirk's dad. I just gave you 20 characters. I feel like I know all of them, even though Dirk dad, Dirk's dad's barely in the movie. Did you say Floyd Gondoli? I said Floyd, yeah. Okay. I met him early. Um, and I might have missed two, but I mean, there's just 20 right there. And I feel like in my head, I can see them. I know who they are. I know what they're bringing to the movie. And in some cases, like Dirk's dad... In two scenes for a minute, shave when you do that. Uh, School never occurred to you. <laughs> I agree. I, I mean, it's like it's a feat of casting, right? I mean, half of these, two thirds of these people, maybe we'd seen once or twice in movies before. Well, I was gonna add. So at, I think we always talk about the that guy. Mm-hmm. This is a that guy's at the time. Sure, and they so like. John C. Riley was that guy. He was in like Days of Thunder. He was in some stuff. I didn't know what his name was. I just knew what he looked like. Luis Guzman, Phil Baker Hall, Molina. Cheeto was, I knew him from the Goat movie and he'd been in some smaller roles, but yeah. he wasn't Don Cheeto. It was yet. Devil in a Blue Dress was the yeah. big breakout for him. And then this came right almost right after that. Ridgely never knew his name until he was the colonel. William H. Macy had been around, but I, I don't feel like he was fully William H. Macy yet. He had just done Fargo. There right. was, the take on this was that Burt Reynolds was the star and that William H. Macy was like the most notable name after him. Right. So maybe the year and that before his agents he became, were like, this isn't a very big part. And he was like, I'll do it. I just Thomas Jane this. became Thomas Jane in this movie. It's like, who the fuck is that? Mm-hmm. Hoffman, we talked about in the Scent of a Woman pod. Mm-hmm. He was basically that guy from Scent of a Woman and you'd seen him, but I don't I don't feel like he was fully Hoffman. Was yet. this the movie that PTA saw? Was that the movie that PTA saw that got him yeah, excited about him? Was he it got Scent of a Woman? Scent of a Woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Downey Sr. was like a historic that guy and probably still is. And then uh, Melora Walters. I mean, and then Dirk's mom, who Joanna Gleason yeah. was a stage actress and he's just like, I wrote this part for you. You're a homicidal mom. <laughs> um, I, I thought of you immediately for this. It's a little scary. Psychotic, mean-spirited mother. But um, I just, to me, that's one of the legacies of this movie is just like, over and over again, it's like that one, that one, that one, and he could just pick it. But in that way, he thinks just like us. Like when we're on the show and we're talking about people, and we're like, "Fucking love that guy. Love when that guy shows up in a movie." That's how he thinks when he sees John C. Riley in Casualties of War. He's like, "Fucking love that guy. Makes me laugh. He's a really good actor." What was the Tarantino one? It was Paul Calderon. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. on one of the pods we did with him, and he was like, "Paul Calderon. I just always liked him." Paul yeah. Calderon's like we talked about that on Copland too. How good he is. Yeah, yeah. That, my like, man from scenes. Amsterdam. Yeah. yeah. It does seem like one recurring theme with like the truly great transcendent directors is they just love movies so much that they almost think of themselves like a GM in sports where they're like, that person, why hasn't that person made it? Oh, I love that person in this. And they're just like collecting assets. He's got such a good eye. I mean, like we'll talk more about it when we get to the the, the, the awards, but like even people that you didn't mention stick with you. Like yeah. Cheryl Lynn sticks with you. You know yeah. what I mean? Like who that. also would go on to be a you know Laurel Hallman yeah. was like the star of the L word. You know, she like went on right. to become a big person. Yeah. The, so the kid who plays Johnny Doe, you know, like it's just like he gets he gets faces right, he gets vibes right. He's just he's just a great caster. Um the porn piece of it. <laughs> that just the piece? Just what, what? well <laughs> which piece? 
I think this is for my house and I talked about this when uh when we did the 20 characters thing. The relation of this movie to porn and people, I'm like basically the same age as PTA. The relationship we had with porn versus the relationship people probably have under f- maybe 30, 35 now, where porn was not accessible to us in any way. Mm-hmm. So it was either your parents had a couple cassettes hidden in the closet or you stole one from a video store or you stole one from a store or whatever, or you Playboy magazine. And like, I mean, p- people would watch like scrambled porn on whatever cable thing. It was, you just couldn't get porn. So there was this whole generation, Sean's worried. He doesn't know if I can land the plane on this. I'm going to. <laughs> Come on, There was Sully. this whole generation <laughs> of kids that PTA was tapping into that they knew who John Holmes was. They knew mm-hmm. what this world was. They'd always been kind of fascinated. They didn't know any behind the scenes stuff with it. And the I'm taking you behind the scenes in late 70s, early 80s porn was a real draw. Mm-hmm. It was like, whoa, can he pull this off? What is this? I don't, nowadays, I don't know what this movie would even look like or how it even, nobody has the same kind of association. We all knew kind of the same actors. Back in the day, we you wouldn't know. Well, He's, it's like what he talks about. He's like, it costs like twenty grand, you know, to make one of these things. You have to have distribution. Like it, I, I would imagine there just wasn't as much for one thing, right? Like they were just like, hey, there's like five big stars or whatever. They're going to be in movie theaters when when Spanish Pantalones comes out. Like <laughs> it's at the theater, and there are people like running to get in and stuff like well, that. Well, that was a moment in the late seventies where you did release. Real porns that money was spent on in theaters mm-hmm. and they would be in the, you know, whatever the, the thing in the front. They would have the actors' names. The marquee, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the marquee. Yeah, the, like Deep Throat was a genuine hit in the movie yeah. theater. I mean, it made a significant amount of money. I think the thing, though, is like he's looking at it in hindsight. Well, he's looking at it. He's got at 20 it, he's, years distance from he's what got he's distance, experiencing. But- the the crux of this movie, as weird as it sounds, other than the family piece, is like he's nostalgic for this era before home video mm-hmm. <laughs> destroyed mm-hmm. porn. And he dives into it the same way like The Godfather is about like family and the mafia's relationship yeah. but it's through a, capitalism and all that stuff. It's like an apt metaphor for how he views the movie going experience too. Yeah. You know, he yeah. loves being in movie theaters. He watches stuff on home video. I was but- cracking up watching Floyd basically like talk. You could change out the Floyd Jack scene and make it like streaming TV. You know what I mean? Yeah, you it's like it Christopher anything. Nolan talking yeah. to HBO Max in 2021. That's what that conversation is. Right. So you have Jack, he takes Dirk to the diner with Roller Girl and Amber and he's explaining to him his theory on porn, right? And he's like, basically it's, how do they? How do I keep them in the theater after they come? Mm-hmm. When they're covered in their little joy juice. <laughs> but they just want to know how the story they ends. They just got to sit in it. And... <laughs> He's really passionate about yeah. it. It's not like bullshit. He's like, this is the thing that's driving him. I know people want to jack off to my movies, but how do I get them to care about the story? Then it circles back with the big scene with Floyd, which is like the crux of the movie, where Floyd's like, you're holding on too tight, Jack. And, and you know, home video is the future. These four weird-looking kids I brought to your party, they're the future. People just want to see people fucking on film. And Jack's like, he just can't believe yeah. this is going this way. Wait, I, I'm a real filmmaker. Think about how sad he looks walking through the video warehouse. Oh, God. But that's what's so, like, I know you've seen a lot of Burt Reynolds movies. If you watch a lot of Burt Reynolds, especially at the height of his fame, he was a winking at the audience kind of actor. He was a really charming, I know how cool I am kind of guy. And that was his persona, especially when he's in that, like, Hooper Gator kind of like, I'm the man period. Yeah. This performance is nothing like that. 
No. He's dead serious sincere. He's playing it. He's never, ever turning to the audience and going like, I'm a slimy porn director. Mm-hmm. It's not like that at all. It's like, I love what I do. I'm really passionate about what I do. And I want everybody to feel the same passion that I feel. And that's such a smart choice by PTA, smart choice by Burt Reynolds. Like, it makes the movie feel more sincere and not like Spinal Tap or some jokey thing about, you know, a guy's huge dick. Like, that's not really what the movie is about, ultimately. It's part of what makes it so effective so many years on because it's it's not a laugh. That doesn't take away from Reed Rothschild being the funniest person who's ever lived. Right. But it's still, it makes the movie feel more real. Wait a minute. You come to my house, to my party, <laughs> tell me about the future? He's so upset. We, uh, my generation has this crazy relationship with Burt Reynolds, right? Like when I was growing up, and we talked about this with the Clint Eastwood pod, it felt like Burt and Clint and then Redford and Newman were the four biggest stars. If you, if you go planet. back and read Adventures in the Scrum, I mean, invoking Goldman again, but if you read like some of his, what, 1970s, 1980s books, it's just like he's invoking Burt as like, this movie gets greenlit if it's Burt Reynolds and it's Burt like made, the right stuff or whatever. <laughs> two movies where Every Which Way But Loose and Smoking the Bandit yeah. are just two movies where they're like, we don't really have an idea, but... Why don't you drive? Burt, yeah. We're putting Burt in a car. Yeah. He's got a hat and yeah. there's a guy behind him in a truck and he's just going to be like, hey, any Smokies? Yeah. And there's going to be a cute girl in the, dry, in the passenger seat and we're off and America will go to this. And guess what? We did. And they made sequels. Then he made Cannonball Run, same thing. Burt, just drive and do the Burt Reynolds laugh. He was also, I think, the most important talk show guest of the 70s. You know, my generation was Johnny Carson. Great, And it was like he was the number one Johnny Carson guest. He would come on, he would crush it. He would flirt with whoever the guest was. The comics could make fun of him. And he was just the fucking coolest guy. So to see him as Jack Horner, the stunt casting of that, and then to have it work... The impact now, now we know it's Jack Horner, but in 97, it was like, I can't fucking believe this is Burt Reynolds. Yeah. As Jack Horner, porn empresario. He, so this is kind of in the Evening Shade era. Like, had he it's been after a, Evening Shade, yeah. Like, had he been in a movie in that period in the mid-90s when he was doing Evening Shade? We can go through it. So, I enjoyed he Evening moves Shade, to, by the way. The he moves to, uh, show, yeah. he shifts to TV late 80s. He's in BL Striker. Mm-hmm. Didn't make it. Evening Shade, five years. That goes off the air. Strip Tease, 96, yeah. where he plays, what was the guy's name? Huey Long? Uh, one of those guys? No, Huey Long. His name no. was Congressman David Dilbeck. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, he played. A great name. So that movie became famous because they gave Demi Moore a whole bunch of money and she's getting it. And then that movie didn't do well. And it just seemed like it was done. And then this movie revived his career, but he hated it and he was <laughs> promoted and. Honestly, cost himself, I think, an Oscar. Oh, for sure. No question. Which we'll litigate a little bit later. But yeah, the, uh, wait, what is, so you're younger than me. What do you, what do you see from Reynolds? In the movie or in Just his career? Just in general, like Deliverance, Longest Yard, like that era of Reynolds. I, wrote, I think he was a really good actor. I, yeah, I wrote about him when he passed away. Um, I think he is probably like the best athlete movie star we ever had. Mm. You know, like he—he he really, especially in his best movies, you just mentioned a couple of them, *Longest Yard* and *Deliverance*. He's basically playing an athlete in both of those movies, and he's utterly believable. He has that same kind of like—it pains me to say this—that same kind of like Tom Brady, like winning, like you can't beat me quality the to charisma, him. You the know, charisma. Yeah, yeah. And little Brad Pittish, right? I've said sure. Brad Pitt's probably the closest. But you though. would never believe that Brad Pitt would be the quarterback in a prison football movie. 
Like he's just he's too pretty. Yeah. Like Burt Reynolds is rough and tumble. He seems and he like the kind of like guy who, who was, would go to jail. I mean, yeah. like in a weird way. And yeah. like yeah. you could tell, like he had knee surgery when he was 22, and you could tell. You know, like right. he seemed like a man. He went to Florida State. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he could be the quarterback of a prison team. He could fight off a bunch of rapists in the Appalachian, whatever, in deliverance. But he could also be a divorced guy in a rom-com. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. he could also be in Smoking the Bandit. He like, also, there's he, nobody like him, though. He was really underrated because a lot of his most interesting choices were not successful, but they were cool choices. Like, he made movies with Peter Bogdanovich in the 70s that failed, but were really interesting. Like, he tried to make a musical with Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah. It was a huge flop, but he wasn't just the Smoking the Bandit guy. No, he made The End was an interesting one, too, Tries to kill himself. Mm-hmm. Didn't totally work, but it was, I don't know, I kind of like it. Yeah, he was he was a re- he was more thoughtful than he got on, but it's funny to read all the press about this movie because by the time we get to 1997, he's like, I'm fucking Burt Reynolds, man. You will treat me with respect. It's interesting how some of these people age, right? Like Newman, when he hits a point where he's, he's too old to kind of be Paul Newman anymore, he really retreats. And yeah. then all the movie choices he makes basically from late 80s on, are like older guy parts. You don't know a lot about him. They're very he's, precise. He's just yeah. living in Connecticut. He's doing his salad dressing for charity. He's racing some cars, but we don't know a lot about him. Bert seemed like he had the hardest time giving up being a celebrity. Yeah, mm-hmm. but then, like these people all have like, they all have expenses, you know? Yeah. So they're, they're they're just, some of them do do shit, you know? And well, some in of 2014, them- he auctioned off basically everything. Yeah. I mean, smoke, the Smokey and the Bandit car. The Longest Yard, football helmet, all kinds of stuff. And I have a lot of regrets about he not was, buying the Longest Yard helmet. He, was he going to do the Dern part in Once Upon a Time he in was, Hollywood? He was. And and Tarantino talks about spending time with him and doing the table read with him for that movie. And you could tell that he had changed a lot from twenty from 1997 to 2017. That he yeah. became much more contemplative and much much more reflective about his career and what he had done. But I think you're right. I think he's had a hard time and giving up being the wasn't man. Wasn't he doing like Same for basically Stallone like right public now. speaking mm-hmm. where he would go and like be like story time with Burt Reynolds and he would just like if he did I would have loved to have seen it because he, he had was so, doing so many stuff good like stories because that's what Tarantino says is like he would just go up to Reynolds and start asking him about like early 60s cowboy shows mm-hmm. and Burt Reynolds would be like oh that was a great director you know and like yeah, this guy yeah. did this yeah he also this was the last movie where he was still pretty handsome he's probably like 61 at this point he does Driven I think like two years later and uh, he's got the plastic surgery face. Mm-hmm. And that's like one of those movies where it looks like he's wearing a Burt Reynolds mask. Sly had done whatever he started to do. He's got like the Sly Stallone mask on. Well, his hair and his beard and as the Jack are so never, perfect. Yeah, but it in is. this In this movie, it's the only time where you're like, if that guy's wearing a wig, it's actually okay because this guy would wear a wig. Yeah, and it's, you know? it's and this is based at least physically on a, a specific well, Remember Tarantino, director. his theory on this was that it was supposed to be Gerard, Gerard, Gerard Damiano. Damiano. Yeah. yeah. And that, he's that's got a very funny take like on that. that that he did on the the ringer pod that he did. Oh well, we can do it now. He's the, the it, this he loved this movie. The one thing that made him mad was if this was based on Damiano, who was like a real director. He was like, "There's no way that guy would have made the piece of shit of uh, Brock Lander's Oral Majesty right, Seven. Right. Like, <laughs> he's like, a, he's a real director. Yeah. That wasn't happening. Well, he so wouldn't funny. have looked at the dailies of it and been like, "This is my best work." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the. Uh, you mentioned the soundtrack when we were talking the other day, the best recreate the actual time period soundtrack. It's this or Dazed and Confused. Dazed and Confused is easier because it's one day. Mm-hmm. This is going from 77 to 84. And it's this or Goodfellas. Yeah. Yeah. Every I, choice. There's two. Oh, Goodfellas is a good one too. Yeah. But that's Goodfellas even a longer actually, period. The thing that I love about Boogie Nights is that 
you could almost imagine the music in this movie being diegetic, meaning like it would be playing at the party. That, that's the yeah. point that I was making. The 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 soundtrack that captures the moment that they're in, you would imagine all of the characters are listening to these songs. Yeah. Like Goodfellas is really cool, but, but there are like moments Hendrix where it's like playing when you're like. I don't know if Jimmy listens to Hendrix. Exactly. You, know, like, exactly. you don't think Jimmy Conway was <laughs> yeah. cracking yeah. up? The, yeah. the, the musical fusion is really great. But in this movie, every single song is a song that would be playing at Jack's house. Yeah. Yeah. And or at Hot Tracks or whatever. Right, right yeah. or at the club. Yeah, the soundtrack. I've seen this movie so many times that I made a Boogie Nights playlist once and just put it in order. And I felt like I I could you nailed have it. it on outside and it'd just be like the movie was on, even though the movie wasn't on. It moves so distinctly from one song to the other in a way that you just instantly know where you are in the yeah. movie. Mm. And almost every choice is great. Even like Spill the Wine, which is a song that I never really loved that much, but how it's used at Jack Horner's house and the girl jumping in right as it kicks up into yeah. the pool. And it's just like, man. And he wanted these songs to the point that, what was the ELO story? Jeff Lynn? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He brings him to a screening to try to convince him to let him use that last song. Living thing, yeah. And uh, he's sitting there watching him and the screening ends and Dirk pulls out his dick and then it ends and the song kicks in. <laughs> and Jeff Lynn raises his arms like, yes! <laughs> and he's like, cool, I get to have that song. But uh, yeah, he really cared about this stuff. I does he The music, I guess... I'm trying to think of what other PTA movies. I don't know if he's ever used the soundtrack like this again, right? No, I mean Inherent Vice has a wonderful soundtrack. He he's he starts Greenwood to get scores. more into scoring with Johnny Greenwood and, yeah. like, and John Bryan even. Yeah, he, yeah, he has John Bryan and Punch Drunk Love. He's much more precise. Like you get that song from Popeye and Punch Drunk Love that becomes like the theme of the film in Phantom Thread. Um, it's almost all. I think it's almost all score. Um, Licorice Pizza is the la is is. Yeah, that's has, true. It's yeah, very similar true. to this. It's, yeah. the, it's the first time in a while that he goes with kind of a jukebox But it's approach. like with Licorice, there's almost this, like, probably to challenge himself, like, some obscurity. You know, mm -hmm. like, it's not, it's the Paul McCartney song that was, it's a great song, but it's not like this movie is Paul hits. McCartney. Yeah. This is Best of My Love. And when yeah. Best of My Love plays in yeah. this movie, you're like, oh yeah, this is probably one of the great pop songs written, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, in the last 50 years. Such a happy, great way to start a movie, too. I forgot to mention during the porn part, PTA admitted that he interviewed Gerard Damiano and he said, quote, he was the best of the hardcore directors. He went through a period of believing he could make art films about sex. Home video came along in 1979, destroyed that illusion. That's such a crazy thing to make a movie opus about, and yet he did. He takes this one kernel and he's like, this feels like a movie and it becomes basically Goodfellas or The Godfather for that one little tiny idea. That's also an interesting way of thinking about why this movie makes sense as not just like a entertainment comedy that it's a really sophisticated drama is you know that period in the 70s where not just deep throat but like i am curious yellow and yeah like there there were a series of films that were ostensibly introduced to audiences even summer with monica the uh, bergman movie were like introduced to audiences as kind of soft porn yeah, yeah they, they were they were sophisticated foreign films, but they were soft porn too. They were full of naked people. Don't look now, right? Yeah, there, and the controversy around now. that movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, last Tango in Paris. And so there was this like collision of it wasn't like porn now, where it's like CR goes home and he fires a Pornhub. You know what I mean? Like it's not <laughs> like that. CR. <laughs> it it was it was still CR is like Philly special <laughs> typing it in, seeing what's coming up. <laughs> <laughs> that that is the name of your directorial debut That's right. in the porn world. Um, He's he was a Damiano guy. CR. <laughs> <laughs> was Doug Peterson though is the question <laughs> maybe, maybe. Uh, 
it, it, you could still make the case that there was like an art house quality to it. And so the, in a way, Paul Thomas Anderson as an aspiring young cinephile and as an aspiring young porn addict was like, these two things make sense together. Yeah. Well, there's the, there's that weird, the, the brilliance of this movie is the 70s, 80s changeover. And this idea that Floyd has this awareness that like, people aren't here to see your lighting. They're not here to see your stories. They're not here to see Chet and Brock. They're here to watch people fuck, you know, and like they want it now in their homes, they want it like that kind of like changeover from it being like, let's Trojan horse some sex into this cop movie or into this like Downton Abbey story is now <laughs> is now gone. Like it's just like, yeah, let's just have these people screw in a car. That 70s, 80s changeover is a really important part of this movie. And I hate to use the you had to be there card, but I do feel that way. The late 70s, there's something so happy and cool about it. You also just can't do cocaine for that long. Well, you well that, lose you your mind. that too. But yeah. even you look back at the pop culture and the sports from that era, right? Like you, like Saturday Night Live, you watch like the third and fourth seasons of SNL. It's like 77 and 78 and the movies that are coming out and the music that's coming out. And it's like the last vestige of some great groups we had in the classic rock era. And then it hits 80 and it, there's like this subtle turn where the 80s had so much promise. Like, oh my God, we made it to the 1980s. We got out of the 70s and we got out of Watergate and all the assassinations from the 60s and these terrible and the Carter presidency and the 80s are going to have so much hope and be better. Oh, drive those, by on Jimmy there by you. Well, you know, he was my <laughs> one of my favorite presidents. It was just, he was not a popular president at the time. But we got to 80 and even like the music turns, it gets yeah. it gets darker. You can watch it. Like some of the Saturday Night Lives are on Peacock. Even the feel of the Saturday Night Live on the set, it's just like this darker, grimier. Coke's really starting to come in. And I don't know. I Even as a little kid, you could feel like there was a happiness thing. And then it kind of ramps back up around 84. I think you're right. I, I think in the 70s, it felt like anything could happen in your popular culture. Like there's yeah. still an unpredictable quality to it. And then in the 80s, everything gets more adversarial. It's like punk breaks, but also like movie studios really button down. Yeah. So you don't have these crazy creative experiences where these, you know, filmmakers get $60 million to make their dream movie. So right. you get, you know, a lot of movies that we like, but like, you get like Beverly Hills Cop and Rocky Three and Four. Well, you and also have the people from the seventies who were like, "I'm going to change the world," and then by the eighties, like, "I need to make money." Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that's like the big. That's why the Big Chill is such an important movie. It's all these people kind of looking at each other, going, "What do we stand for?" It's a great point. What are our ideals? So yeah, that that changeover it's weirdly awesome. Mm -hmm. That welcome, ho goodbye seventies, hello eighties, and there's so much promise. And then the eighties, it's that not as bad in real life as it was in Boogie Nights. It helps that it's. Chris, of course, won a won a title in eighty. <laughs> when did you win the title? The Phillies won in eighty, and then the Sixers in eighty three. Yeah. yeah, that. I mean, that's another reason that that part sucked. <laughs> that era. You were crushing at that time. At you were 80s? five years old. Yeah, I had like a, a little vest on. Ride my bike. <laughs> we got to take a break, and then I want to talk about New Line and New Line's relationship to this movie. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. You know what sounds good after a long day? Ice cream. I love ice cream. Right now is the perfect time to get some. Sonic has half-price shakes every night after 7 p.m. when you order online or in the app. Just think of it, all that creamy, soft serve, hand-mixed with your favorite flavors for half the price in any size. Listen, a lot of people like goofy shakes. I like vanilla shakes. You can throw 40 flavors at me. You know what I'm going to order? You know what I love the most? Vanilla shakes. It's perfect because me and my family 
at least once a week. We still all get ice cream together when we're together. Grab Sonic Half Price Shakes after 7 p.m. now. Exclusions apply. Available for a limited time only at participating Sonic Drive-Ins. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. Vital Farms keeping it bull free. We always wanted our kids as they were growing up to have stuff that came from the right places. Vital Farms is perfect for this. Here's how good Vital Farms is. You can go to vitalfarms.com slash farm and you can get a 360 degree peek at the actual farm where your eggs came from. Uh, It's a certified bee corporation. They are devoted to improving the lives of people, animals, and the planet through food. Great taste. You can do fried, poached, scrambled. Vital Farms bet you can taste the difference. Food simply tastes better when you know where it came from. Shop the farm that's a certified bee corporation and gives their hens the lifestyle they deserve. Vital Farms. Look for the black Vital Farms carton in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms. Keeping it bullshit free. All right, so New Line's crushing it as we head into 97. We have some really cool movie studios um, just from a creativity, trusting young directors. Like, There's obviously some, some bad stuff going on too, but we don't know that yet. New Line has seven. They have Dumb and Dumber and they have The Mask. Mm-hmm. They are working with cool people, making fun stuff, trying to find young up-and-coming directors. They have... Uh, Mike DeLuca is the big executive who's pre-storied history. There's some good good pieces about and him. And runs, currently running Warner, Warner Brothers. Yeah, yeah. but it, in the yeah. 90s was definitely a little like fast cars, Yeah, he fast was, living guy. He was the cool young movie executive who was dating Julianne Moore. Yes, and he champions PTA. PTA is coming off Heart 8, which was supposed to be called Sydney. The studio took it from him. He was scarred emotionally. And this is the second movie. And all he's thinking is... Nobody's fucking with me this time. Mm-hmm. His script's 185 pages, which I guess is an incredibly long amount. I don't know enough about reading different movies. It's about scripts. a page a minute. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and he's that's like, we're filming all of it, and that's how it's going to go. He's already and, walking in with a three hour and 20 minute movie. Right. And he's like, this has to be three hours, and it has to be rated NC 17, and these are my two conditions. And they make the movie. And eventually it's like, it's got to be under three hours and it's not going to be NC-17. They start battling. We covered, Grantland did an oral history about this movie that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Amazing piece. It. Howie really, Kahn and Alex French. I think it was the single best oral history really we probably good. had. And uh, at some point they become super concerned about the movie. It's scoring badly. People are upset. It's got the wrong yeah, vibe. Yeah, there's a big chunk of, in the oral history about the focus groups for this. Yeah, the focus groups are a disaster. So Bob Shea, the guy that runs New Line, he does his own cut. Yeah. Now, he's not an enemy of this movie because I think a lot of people just would have either buried it or whatever. But at the same time, he's very adversarial with PTA at this point. He does a cut. They decide to do a focus group. Are you going to start hashtag release the Shea cut on Twitter? <laughs> <The Shea cut. laughs> That's it's not something I want to see. Yeah. I don't need to see it. As much as, I, I mean, Bob Shea, for the record, like put out John Waters movies. Yeah, he did a lot of Sonny good stuff. Chiba movies. Like he put, he was a real like, exploitation grindhouse independent cinema dude who also like helped the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise rise but then got older and got richer and got started releasing lots of mainstream movies and so this is him in his 50s or 60s in his like I'm in charge of the fucking studio and I give you the money who's this fucking 26 year old telling me his movie has to be three hours so he does this cut there's a focus group PTA goes to the focus group he talks about this in oral history and walks up and down the line telling everybody how much it sucks and try, tries to basically neg it. 
it ends up coming out at it's 239. But at some point something flips. And I don't know. I just remember vaguely from like the marketing of it being excited about it during the summer. Cause that was the era of they would release the summer preview of Entertainment Weekly yeah. premiere and the fall preview and everything started to become about previews. And when they were doing the fall previews, it's like this is coming. It's like it this seems looks like amazing. that 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 drum beat had started in before it got made. Like it sounds like especially from Howie and Alex's oral history, it's like this was a script that was not being widely distributed. It was like it wasn't getting like his would, agent John Lesher was very careful yeah. about who he shared it with. Mm. Right. And then when the actors would see it, they were like, holy shit. You know, and now they're Everyone the casting what ifs here yeah. is like amazing, but it sounded like this was a like, how can I get in this movie movie? It was a hot script. It and a lot of I think a lot of actors were excited by it, but a lot of actors were also scared off by it. Yeah. And there's like a little bit of a dance that we can talk about. Like we're hitting Wahlberg, that in part for example. Two, yeah. Um to for me, from my vantage point as a kid. Uh, the thing that did it for me was the trailer. I think it's like one of the all-time greatest trailers ever. That was on my list. The, the moment, yeah. like a minute and a half into the trailer when Mama told me not to come hits and the car, the Corvette pulls out of the garage, I was like, holy fuck. When, when, when is this movie, this is all that I care about. And he's famed for this. I mean, mm -hmm. his, he has the best trailers. He cuts his own trailers. They well, are the he most has exciting. the best trailers because this trailer works so well. I think he realized how important the trailer is. I mean, I, I would, I enjoy watching this trailer to this day. I've seen this movie yeah. fifty five times. All, and all, you know, he's notorious for putting sometimes footage that isn't in the movie in his trailers. Like yeah. he really treats it like it's its own art form. That was my relationship with it too. I don't know when I saw that it was at some point in that summer. Or I don't know yeah. August, whatever. You probably and, saw Austin Powers and they played it. Yeah, and the trailer comes on, and within ninety seconds, you're like. I will run over somebody on my way to the theater to see this yeah. in the theater. I cannot wait for this to come out. It just, they crushed it. I do feel like trailers mattered more back then. We had way less information about movies. Mm -hmm. It's harder to have that same sensation. But yeah, I think once the, once the trailer was out and percolating, then we were off. Then it was like, okay, wait a second. So Mark Wahlberg and... Wait, the guy's got a 13-inch dick. Is that, are they going to show that? Is this a porn? Julianne Moore, I've always liked her. Burt Reynolds is... Like really in this, and yeah. you just it just built, and it became a thing. And it I wonder how because well. you know this movie probably from everything I read about it and I remember was not like a people protesting outside of the movie theater. Not movie. at all. No, this was, and I think a lot of that is down to the fact that it's about a guy. You know, I mean, I think it's. I was going to ask. I wanted to talk about this. I think that ultimately the thing that saves this movie's skin, if this is a movie about Melora Walters's character or Roller Girl, like. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it just isn't the same film. You know what I mean? It's it's much more tragic, right? It's completely by design, right? Because he talks a lot about how there are two huge influences on this movie. One is Exhausted, which you talked about. Yeah. The other is this segment on a current affair about Shauna Grant. Yeah. Who is a porn star who died. And Killed herself. He said, he talks about it and he says, it's obviously this really tragic tale and it's very sad. It's literally a girl who like gets on a yeah. bus in Iowa and comes to California to find stardom and suddenly she's in, a, in porn. And then she eventually kills herself. But he says that he's like, there was in this very twisted way something kind of funny about this segment of A Current Affair. But you, he never could have made a movie about, about Shauna Grant. A, a porn actress who commits suicide. It just basically had been Roller Girl killing herself at the end of this movie. And it would have been so would've much wanted. darker, so much less fun. Like, we're talking about this movie because we think it's so fun to watch. So it's a very calculated decision on his part. I think there's one other piece to this, though, and it, there wasn't protesting anything like that. There was just genuine excitement for it. I just think this was an amazing era for movies, and it starts really with uh, Reservoir Dogs, 
But Pulp Fiction is yeah. when it officially starts. But 94, 95, all these directors that are coming up, even people like Kevin Smith, like Chasing Amy, I wanted to see that the first night it came out. Definitely. But I just feel like that, this movie moved into that group where it's like, oh my God, we, you know, we always compare movies to basketball in this pod, but it, it was like one of those things where we had all these great stars and it's like, oh my God, we have another, now we have Giannis? It's just, it, it, this is essentially like, the, the question at the center of this pod that Sean does, but it's like, they made this movie for $25 million, right? And it's like, I know why they don't do it. I know what the return on investment calculations are, but when you read about like the Russo brothers spending $400 million on a yeah. piece of shit action movie, you are kind of like, what? why? Why are you guys doing this? Like, is there a Boogie Nights out there for $30 See, I'm, million? I'm more worried that there's not a Paul Thomas Anderson. Like, that That might have been I, the last crazy era of directors. Well, and when you read about what the set was like, I don't know that you could do a set like this anymore, right? Well, you definitely couldn't do the thing where they all went <laughs> to porn not. sets and watched yeah. them shoot a porno. I, some of it is that opportunity cost and that return on investment that you're talking about. Some of it is that, you know, maybe this generation of filmmakers isn't necessarily interested in telling these stories. Mostly, I think it's just because studios just know they can make more money on bigger movies. Yeah. So, yeah. like, this, pro this whole film, think about the amount of time that this took up for Bob Shea. Bob Shea spent a edit. lot of time working on this <laughs> yeah. movie. He ran the studio. Yeah, he would just be making the comet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He would have just yeah. been making a huge movie, which if it works, is meaningful to the share price of the corporation that owns his movie studio. It wasn't like that in 1997. The, the business was, you know, it was still big business. And they, but, had to, and they had home video. Right. There were multiple different ways to make money. You could tell me it could go one of two ways. Either there's this whole new generation of Spielbergs coming up because we have the ability now, but we have this incredible technology and equipment. You can edit a movie on your iPhone now. Like my kids know how to edit stuff, stuff that I never, well, I never mm -hmm. knew anybody that would have the skills that just a normal person has now with editing. On the other hand, there's no way in 2022, you'd have like 15 year old Paul Anderson with not a ton to do, just like I'm obsessed with movies and I'm obsessed with this exhausted documentary. Like now he'd be on TikTok. I don't want to sound like old guy on the couch, but like, but his, I just wonder, like, will we have this next generation of people who's like, all I care about is movies. You, you definitely know this better, I think, than we do because you're raising teenagers. Yeah, but I think that the thing that Paul Thomas Anderson had was an obsession, obsession with this world, and I, I think we actually live in more obsessed times. People can go even deeper into the things that they care about than they so could that's before. Optimistic, then, right? So, so yeah. you could, and I always say this: it's like. Damien Chazelle, Ryan Coogler, and Greta Gerwig exist. Like, they're yeah, three sure. young filmmakers who make mainstream movies for big audiences. And they're really, really the artistically and sound. Aster, yeah. yeah, and then there's a whole other generation of them that are maybe not as commercial, but that are exciting. Like, there are, those people exist. In some, in, for the most part... Coogler's 12 years ago, though. I mean, that's when Fruitvale was, what, 2012? Right. Is 10 this, years ago. So basically, like, who is the 26-year-old you're saying? Yeah, who's that is really the 26-year-old now? I don't think that 26-year-olds are trusted by studios is the other thing. I don't. Well, think what about our guy Cooper? Cooper Rife? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... But I mean, that can we... Is he an anomaly or is there going to be a generation? But he's made like, two movies and now he's making a TV show, right? Yeah. Well, that's what. That's, well, that's the, the other problem. That's the pernicious you get thing that right happens. To the TV show. Yeah. yeah. Like, is Boogie Nights a TV show now? I There's don't... also like we and we've talked about this a lot too, where a lot of first-time indie directors often get sucked up into the Marvel Disney kind yeah. of 
you oh you we we loved your little first feature. Why don't you do this season? Direct of, this of episode of Mandalorian Loki or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That is what happens. Yeah. Uh we gotta talk about the Mark Wahlberg piece and the Julianne Moore piece really quickly. Mark Mark Wahlberg, who I would say over the last twenty five years has probably had one of the best careers in terms of outputs, money made, um, celebrity. If you're just talking about actors, he's what in the top six? There's a case for him as career. one of the two or three most successful movie stars of the last 20 years. Definitely successful stretch it out over the 25 yeah. years. It's it's kind of uncanny. He also is weirdly like not aged. Yep. You know. Yep. Successful is a good word. And somebody who can do he showed he can do comedy, he did action films, all this stuff. Yep. Made a uh, lot of movies that people really like to this day. Our history with him in 1997, he was in Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Mm-hmm. He was Donnie Wahlberg's brother. He had one really good song, Good Vibrations, which I stand by as like one of the best okay. summer songs Chill of out, the Sinatra. early 90s. Nobody's trying to take Can Good Vibrations Can you rap the second <laughs> verse of Good Vibrations right now? Come on, come on. <laughs> feel it, feel it. Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch had been from <laughs> South Philadelphia. Do you think you would feel this way? No, I, I didn't. I honestly didn't know where. I'd probably turned on them faster than others because they were from Massachusetts. Okay. He was a Calvin Klein underwear model. He was in Basketball Diaries with Leo in 95. And that was when it's like, wait, that's Marky Mark? He's in fucking Basketball Diaries? And that was like an important Leo movie. He had a little cachet That, at that was point. the movie that I was like, I can't believe it. Because I had read the Jim Carroll book and I was yeah. like, I cannot believe this is happening. Right. I was so psyched for that. And then he's in Fear yep. in 1996, which was a successful movie. When is Caught the, Reese Witherspoon at a good time. When is the Rosillo solo rewatchables on Fear happening? That's going to be for the 300 That's episode. actually for my birthday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then becomes the lead of Boogie Nights. When's Three Kings? After, this. after, after everything's this. after. So the big risk was the star of my movie is Mark Wahlberg. I'm telling you, in 1997, it was like, really, Mark Wahlberg's going to be the star? It felt like uh, an asterisk coming out, and now it's 25 years later, he's like unbelievable in it, and I'm so glad he's the star. We I mean, did not feel that way in '97. Is it to have two guys who are at the center of your movie who, at the time and in in the future, both had, like, serious misgivings about the film. Yeah. I mean, it's really... I mean, I guess Don't Worry Darling is an example of that, but, like, for the most part, like, you, like the idea that Burt Reynolds and Mark Wahlberg, Burt Reynolds during the making of it, Mark Wahlberg in the years since, who was pretty reticent to talk about this movie. Like, it does not align with his obvious, like, his beliefs. I got him in... when For Grantland in 2014, I had him on the pod for 35 minutes, and I snuck a couple Boogie Nights questions in. I think it was one of the first times he ever even what talked was he about it. also one of the last times he's talked about he it. He seemed excited to talk about um, PTA. But yeah, I think he, I, you know, he definitely has not uh, jumped over the couch to go talk about He's much very spiritual now and clearly like Christianity is a big part of his life and his family's life and so I think that there is some embarrassment about the movie even though he's proud of the movie paradoxically. Yeah. Um, so our, our colleague and pal Jeff Chow and I were talking about this last night. There's like a big question about this performance in this movie to me, which is that <laughs> is Mark Wahlberg bad or not? And if he's bad, is PTA leveraging his badness or is it a self-aware bad performance? And he is at this point of his career sophisticated enough to give it. Because later in his career, Mark Wahlberg becomes a really good actor. He's got two Oscar nominations. He's in some great comedies. He's got range. He's a good action star. But at this time, with a very short resume, and playing a guy who's dumb and is a bad actor... I've thought about this a lot. I just... I, I'm I, going the other way. I think he's, like, perfect. So that's where Jeff and I landed. I, yeah. I think so, too. And I think if you put DiCaprio, who was 
the yeah. it's the sliding doors thing. If you put DiCaprio in as Dirk, the mom scene and the it's my big dick, I'm ready to fuck scene are completely different. He's just like honestly way too good. Like, so he just changes the dynamic where like you watch Eddie in that scene with Jack specifically, and you're like, this is really sad. Like you're kind of pathetic. You know what I mean? And I just think yeah. DiCaprio brings like so much interiority and like pathos to these kinds of parts. And Marcus kind of like, I'm banging my head up against the limits of my intelligence. So, okay. But do you think that Mark knows that? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'm on the other side. I think I think he actually knows what he's doing. I think that's why PTA threw so much stuff at him. Like he talks in the director's commentary stuff. Like I made Mark watch Exhausted over and over again so he could understand the beats of. How and he to does act stuff like, like the, the scene it the scene in Rehads like where he's like it's just the long shot of his. I face. think he's amazing in that scene. I think the case for him being a really good actor is three scenes. The scene with when Dirk's mom goes nuts on him and starts ripping the posters and he gets so upset. I actually think he's like great in that. I'm not stupid! <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? And he's like spits flying out. Um, this isn't your stuff. I think the... Uh, what what state? State of California? I'm ready to shoot, Jack! That I think he's amazing in that and there's the whole testosterone thing we that we're going to a conversation when we did Departed where we were like if Wahlberg as Costigan and like what happens if you like or like putting him in that role, you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. in some ways, it's not, it's a, it's not a similar role, but like it requires the same kind of like collapse at a certain point. So the the, the scene that convinced me that what you guys are saying is right that I agree with is actually a deleted scene. It's the long extended deleted scene between him oh, and Luis Guzman, yeah, where they're shooting a scene from one of the Brocklanders movies, yeah, and you can hear off screen PTA throwing lines at him or and that's sort of like Adam McKay like he go back to that in the director's commentary he's like I just I had two great actors I just want to let it roll like I feel like he genuinely believed and that and he and Guzman are so fucking funny yeah it's like a 10 minute deleted scene where they're just it's in the restaurant doing dialogue right? yeah. in the restaurant and it, Wahlberg is genius at it he's so good at the comic timing of that scene that you're like oh he's really good He's because you're seeing him like cut and go to the next take and do his process of acting, which you don't ever. Well, we never see that. Yeah, he he does another thing too, where he's so wide eyed, innocent, and whatever in the first what forty minutes of the movie. But there's still that side of him where it's like this guy sizes me up. I wonder if he wants five or ten. Like he's still a hustler. That's, yeah, if he you, plays it, both of those sides. I yeah. think really nice. But then as his life starts escalating and he becomes like kind of ego that's my dojo (laughs) like he hits that and then as he starts to become like cokey and suspicious and he meets Johnny Doe and he's like who's this like he becomes like Wahlberg from fear Mm. I don't know I thought he landed the plane I was really impressed he's great and it's also like look he worked he he does this movie does Three Kings it does I Heart Huckabees like he was like a very 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 discerning actor taking chances yeah exactly Yeah. yeah All right, so we settled that. Julianne Moore, who first came on the scene for me in Hand That Rocks the Cradle, where it was like, who's this lady? She's great. And then she's in Shortcuts. She's naked from the waist down in this one scene. Yep. I love Shortcuts. As Carver was like my favorite short story person. Um, and I just love that movie. So and especially her. Yeah. And it, it was like, this person's going to be a major, major star. And then the next couple, she's in Nine Months with Hugh Grant, but it's right after... 
he has the what was it like the the hooker in Hollywood Boulevard, yeah, yeah. and it kind of sabotaged that movie. She was in Assassins, she was in a Jurassic Park sequel. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, it's ninety seven and it hasn't happened for. I just yet. watched that Jurassic Park the other night. Was on. Yeah, she's she's doing fine, but mm-hmm. it hasn't happened yet. And PTI, he's he files away at a probably shortcuts would have been. I think also probably safe the Todd Haynes movie, which is about a woman who thinks that she has something physically wrong with her, but she doesn't know what it is, which is a very upsetting movie to watch in a post-COVID world. Right. Um, but that's a pretty small scale It was an movie. indie yeah. Sundance movie, but it was, it's it well was respected. really critically she acclaimed. Had, she, she was like a known quantity, though. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But she wasn't, she wasn't who a star. she is now. Yeah. Right. She wasn't one of the best actors of her generation. And he puts famous. a ton of thought on Amber Waves, and he studies these different porn actresses, like Annette Haven, all these different people, like that there's this kind of, they're good actors, they're a little detached, they look like they've kind of been in the porn scene maybe a but year she's too playing long. Ver- Veronica Hart, There's a sadness basically. to them. Yeah. yeah, well, she's playing like a compilation of a bunch okay. of, I think, yeah. actors from that era where it's like, there's a dignity to them, but there's a sadness, like what's going on with these people? And that's how Amber Waves comes out. I have some Amber Waves character questions we'll get into later. <laughs> <laughs> the performance is great. Yeah. And it, it was no surprise. It was like, is she going to win an Oscar someday? And you would have bet after the movie. She was yes. nominated for this movie. The yes. only actor nominated for the movie. Um, no, and Reynolds. Oh, sorry. You're yeah, right. Yeah. And Reynolds. Right. Um, only actress. It's a pretty hard, it's a really hard part. Like It really is. The, yeah. the, like what she has to communicate, the like motherly quality that she has, the Coke scenes are like really high tension, the Oedipal stuff that you were talking about, yeah. Chris. Um, and you know she's beautiful. You have to be a good director. Like, she's not like um, that's right. She's not like Roller Girl either. You know, like no. a lot of those porn actresses that you're talking about, they did have kind of like a they were a weathered attainable. quality, yeah, weathered you know? and attainable. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I mean, the scene with her and the first sex scene with her and and Dirk is like mind blowingly good. Bad. You, you have to think yeah. about what how many layers of what they're doing is like where they're convincingly in that movie, but also convincingly on a porn set, but also convincingly in a PTA movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, PTA says he he was so important to him because again, he was a lunatic that the bad porn acting was also believably bad and not like Saturn Live bad. And it was like, who could be the best realistic bad porn actor and he was like Julianne Moore that fucking scene she was the best one kills me that's so good the, the bit like what, the setup for that scene is so fucking funny he's like I've just got back from <laughs> <laughs> it's like what? why is this the plot <laughs> I think you have the job but I want to check one more thing <laughs> oh my god she's so yeah she takes off and then you know the the Heather Graham piece of this Heather Graham's She's in Six Degrees in Separation. That was like her who's this moment. She's in Swingers. Crushes it. Swingers, It. I, I still feel like it took like two years to really become Swingers. Mm-hmm. It wasn't she looks like different a smash in Swingers right too. Away. Yeah, she looks younger. And she, her hair is d- darker. Uh, and, and I think Drugstore Cowboy is the one that PTA saw. I think he saw her. She's like the oh, dead yeah. girl in Drugstore Cowboy. Yeah. And uh, she's really good in that movie. And she's really young and has that incredibly expressive face. She becomes a phenomenon after this movie. I mean, she basically gets the Austin Powers movie. I think she becomes one of the defining, I don't know, babes of the 90s. Mm -hmm. During an era of like Maxim is happening and all these different, we're moving into some weirder era. The internet's kicking in. 
and she's like the the queen of it for a couple years. But good in this movie, like a really good acting performance. The idea of just like fucking roller girl, I don't even know how you come up with that. To, like <laughs> my lead actress is gonna always be on roller skates. She never takes them off. Um, just everything about it. I don't even know who else could have played roller girl. I mean, it's like it's the kind of part like Scarlett Johansson would have been like in 2003. Yes, I'm taking that. But it's just right part, right person, right time. And she's one of the reasons this movie immediately took off. Yeah, and I just, I, that's one of the performances in the movies, the movie where it's like when you're watching her, I, it's funny. It's like, I don't ever think of it as Heather the Graham. I always just think of it as Roller Girl. Like I'm never right. like outside of the movie with her. Yeah, you're right. It's almost like she was like born to play that part or something. There was a, at the time, what felt to me like a famous cover of Details magazine that she was on, where she was painted entirely gold and was naked. Was that after Austin Powers? Was I think that it was Austin? between Austin Powers 2 and Boogie Nights, I think. Yeah. And it was a trifold cover, so it was three parts, and it was her whole body, and she was laying down. And I bought that at the newsstand and ripped <laughs> that cover off and put it up on my basement uh, bedroom wall because I was 16 years old. This and Heather was Graham, that era. She was that incredibly hot actress. And this was the movie where she took her clothes off. So right. if you were a teenage boy, yeah, you were like, holy shit. And now obviously like as an older person, as an adult, as a parent and all this other stuff, <laughs> What's the it's Seth, a lot easier. Seth Rogen website. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, was the Mr. Skin? Mr. Skin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this was but that like, era. As an adult, Jennifer Love Hewitt and Anna Kornikova yes. and it was just all yeah, bubbling chicks, at the magazines, same time. Yeah. 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 But it was an industry. And PTA talks about this too. She's also just so happens to be a really, really good actress, especially in a part like this, where that combination of like innocence and anger and frustration and craziness, like she's perfect for that. She's you know the really, same throughout the movie, except for the limo You scene. know what really does it? It's actually, but there's another quick moment. Um, it's this bubbly, almost caricature. And then the first time that she has sex with Dirk, she's like, don't fucking come in me. And it's like, oh God, this is so dark. Yes. Like, and it's like, I don't take my skates off. Yeah. yeah. It, the These way girls she learn says the it rules is quickly. so yeah. edgy. Yes. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's uh, aiming at her tits, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, this movie's unbelievable. Well, the, the funniest part of that by far is Jack just sitting there comfortably while these two teenagers have sex. That's insane. Right. <laughs> yeah. 1977. Uh, no, it is, it is insane. I mean, he's Eddie's 17. Roller girl, she thinks 19, like 18. She, oh, I we think see her in high, she's school. in high school. I think she's probably 17. So that's Maybe the craziest 18. thing. And yeah. Jack is what, 58, yeah. 60? Yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. It feels like this got the momentum going for him too. Which, for almost anybody else playing Scotty J would have been the nothing part. And now, like, I'm a fucking idiot. By the I'm way, when idiot. you like, talk about a nothing part, like, what is that part? It's like, the, and he put so much thought yeah, into it. Hoffman like, was like, I there's not a lot on the page. Like, I'll just, yeah. but I'm going to try and figure like it out. Dress me like a 14-year-old. Yeah. I always want to look like I'm a little kid whose clothes don't quite fit. His funniest scene, I was going to do this in What's Age the Best, but we can do it now. Him in the background, when Jack and Dirk go at it mm -hmm. at the pool, and if you just, you just watch that scene and just watch Philip Seymour Hoffman the whole time, he's unbelievable. And he's mortified. He's, he's got, his arms are crossed, and he looks like this little kid who's watching his parents get divorced. He's having like a meltdown. But it's, it reminded me when we did the Magnolia pod for Rewatchables 99 and he has that, he's in the background, Cruz is dying. With, yeah. Or Robards, Robards dying. is dying with Cruz. Cruz. 
and Cruz is having that great moment, and Hoffman's not even in the scene. Dude, can I tell? And he's breaking down. It's such like, a good call. Nobody's I better never thought of that. Best thing about this movie and Magnolia is there are so many scenes where so much of the cast is in a shot or mm. in a moment. Because, you know, you usually think of like, oh, today, Cheadle, it's a Cheadle day, so we're going to do a bunch of Don Cheadle scenes or whatever. It's like, no, they like these guys were all on the set. You can see them in the background of shots and like they're, it's it's just an astonishing because that's what gives you the feeling like these people are actually like working and living. The family together. thing, yeah. yeah. So then, then it takes off for him after that. Yeah, we had no doubts about Philip Seymour Hoffman after this movie. And PCA kind of like adopts him as his... Like inspiration. Yeah, in I think ways. they became legitimate friends. Yeah, very close. Like, very, yeah. very close. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Cooper was just he his son the was master the form, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. in that deleted, I mentioned it, but when he says he has to cut a scene, it, it it's like if you had to cut a scene with Chris, which you do all the time, by the way. I don't know. <laughs> That's People not don't true. realize. You cut, I want more from Chris. I <laughs> want to hear more Chris all the time. Cut CR. Uh, and then the John C. Riley piece would be, I guess, the last big piece where. He's now underrated in this movie, is my take on this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's so fucking funny. But I think he was properly rated for years and years, but then he's been in other stuff, right? He's, some people think of him as like a stepbrothers or, you know, walk hard. Like, he's been in so many things at this point that this performance, get, this is his best movie. And you think about period. what this movie would have been if, like, say, Thomas Jane had played Reed Rothschild. Right. And, like, the edge and weird, like, ang like the anger that might have been with Reed and, like... This guy basically like immediately cedes the spotlight to Eddie and just becomes his the Robin to his Batman for the rest of the movie. And it just feels like so kind and sweet. Yeah. And he I was gonna go Pip and Jordan, but Robin Batman's fine. Yeah. But he I mean, he kind of was it's a there's a perfect contrast of it in the movie, right? Because he kind of was Dirk before yeah. Dirk comes along. Even if he was like the second lead in movies, he was the star and Eddie was the new but kid. People told him he looked like Han Solo. That's right. That's right. But then when Johnny Doe comes along, Dirk reacts like, fuck you, man. He doesn't invite him in the way that Reed invited him in. Yeah. And that is a testament to like how warm John C. Riley is as an actor that he can right. pull that off. Plus, every everything he says in the movie is funny. There's not a single line he has <laughs> that isn't funny. That's impossible. How did he do that? Yeah, even when he's getting mad about that they took the tapes. That's the funniest yeah. part. <laughs> Yeah. He's like, you're using all this technical jargon, YPMP. I don't understand this. I Thanks just a lot, man. Thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, he's I did uh I did a mailbag early on for page two. This is like 20 years ago about who is the better sidekick, Reed Rothschild or or uh Tubbs from Miami Vice. And, it's and they like were just a, like great column Bill. It's like eleven 1 hundred words. I have categories. <laughs> Could you write about the, the NFL reasons. maybe? <laughs> I think my editors were like, let's just, let's just I was like PTA yeah, and they PH2. were new line. Just let him go. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, this he becomes John C. Riley after this movie and it leads to a whole bunch of good stuff. And he's had a good career ever since. This movie, uh, we'll get into the other characters when we when we do part two. This movie is nominated for three Oscars. Best original screenplay, supporting actress for Moore, and supporting actor for Reynolds. Did not get best movie. Our best picture nominees that year. Titanic wins. As good as it gets. Goodwill Hunting. The Full Monty. Hmm. And LA Confidential. Tough year. I love LA Confidential. Yeah. That's a good one. No, but I'm saying I don't. 
I guess it squeezes out the full Monty. That was a sensation. I know it's hard. It's hard to say. Like, like I'm not. I'm, I'm not saying Full Monty is like a better movie than. Boogie but Nights. who are you it's, bumping out of that one? Like, as good as it gets, Nicholson wins the Oscar. It's also like guaranteed. Jack Nicholson is in the front row of the Oscars, which like five more million people tune in for. <laughs> We've yeah, but we got to bump one out. So who are you bumping out? Personally, I'm not bumping I, out I, LA Confidential. I guess Full Monty. Yeah, I think I am too. Full Monty is my least favorite movie out of all of these movies. It was a phenomenon. It was a phenomenon. As good as it gets, it's not that good. Oh, I, I don't like as good as it gets, but it's just like you just got to get it. It, it was huge. Like, it was James L. Brooks. Huge. He still he kept his very title. good performances, but like okay, stack it up against the other James L. Brooks movies, especially the Oscar movies. You know, the broadcast newses, the that was the my inter- other terms of endearment. Like, yeah. it's just not as good as his other four movies that are much better. So. In that respect, but no, no matter what, it's telling like, he didn't get nominated for best director, Brooks. And Peter Catania for the Full Monty is nominated. The, the Oscars are so weird. Like Adam McGoyan nomination, I think is cool that he was nominated for the Sweet Hereafter. That's a really good movie. It's a sad movie. But PTA really should have gotten one of those five. Cameron wins for Titanic. Gus Van Sant was in there for Goodwill Hunting. Mm. Hanson for Confidential. Mm-hmm. I just don't think the. I mean, you think about it, especially who's voting for the uh, awards at that point in time. I don't think. You're getting a lot of 78-year-olds digging into Boogie Nights. Or a 26-year-old kid they've never heard of. Yeah. You know? I mean, he was so young. It's too bad. If we're doing that over again, I think they're in both categories. Supporting actor, Reynolds doesn't win. Robin Williams wins for Goodwill Hunting, which I just Hard can't argue, argue. Yeah. I, I, we got to do the It's Not Your Fault to Jack, right? <laughs> it's not Jack Horner, It's Not Your Fault. Uh, Anthony Hopkins for Amistad. Greg Kinnear for As Good As It Gets, which is... Uh, that would definitely be a do-over. If, he's fine. I think he was okay. I thought but he if was you could replace him with John C. Riley, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about that? Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, Hopkins. I mentioned him. Forster. Ran a, oh, for, Brown. sorry. Yeah. Forster for Jackie Brown. You know my feelings on that performance. It's one of the worst things you've ever said to me in listen, person. You don't like that performance? It's fine. What? It's not John C. Riley and like, Boogie Nights. I'm sorry. Actually hurts my feelings. It's not John C. Riley and Boogie Nights. Stop. I think we can have both and Get we can eliminate Anthony Greg Kinnear out of here. And Amistad out of here. Great. What are you talking Let's about? Let's do that then. Yeah. Best actor. John Nick- Quincy Adams. He's a Boston guy. John Quincy Adams. <laughs> Best actor gets tough. Nicholson's in there. Mm-hmm. He wins. Damon's in there for Goodwill Hunting. Not touching that. No argument. Duval's in there for The Apostle. He's amazing in that he movie. He is good. Leo is not in there for The Titanic and should have been. We litigated that in the Titanic. Pod. These the final two were weird. Yeah, Peter Fonda and Uli's Gold. I don't oh, even yeah. know the fuck that. I don't even that remember one. that movie. And He's then a beekeeper. Dustin Hoffman and Wag the Dog was just like when LeBron gets third team All NBA. Even though they didn't play <laughs> do you like Wag games. the Dog? It's fine. He shouldn't have been best leading actor. Yeah, I, he's pretty. We, funny we litigated the Wahlberg thing before. I genuinely believe Wahlberg should have been best leading actor. I think he fucking carries this movie. He's so good in it. Oh yeah, I, I mean, not, I'm not, I'm not, I, the, the funny thing about Wag Dog is, it's like De Niro's definitely the male lead of that movie, completely. Leading actress, I guess this movie didn't really have a leading actress. Julianne Moore lost for Best Supporting Actress. Basinger won for L.A. Confidential. That's a tough one. I I would that, do that, that one over again choice. personally. We got the old lady in Titanic. Stop. Mini Driver. Good morning. Thing. She's good. Say her name. Yeah. Oh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. John <laughs> Cusack in In and Out is really good, but I I actually think Julianne Moore. That's kind of a travesty. She didn't win for Best Supporting Actor. It felt right in the moment, though. Maybe. It's very similar to Peter Fonda being nominated for Yuli's Gold. Like 
It was an acknowledgement of someone who had had a good career, who maybe had not been totally recognized. And it was like a self-aware kind of performance where she's playing like the imitation Mm. of a screen gem who's a prostitute. And so there was all this kind of like intertext conversation about Kim Basinger as a sex symbol. She's good in it. And she's good. Um, But Julian Moore should have won. I agree. Screenplay, Good Will Hunting, Damon and Affleck win. Mm -hmm. Brooks and Mark Andrews are nominated for As Good As It Gets. Boogie Nights, The Full Monty, and then the obligatory Woody Allen. Just deconstructing Harry. I do like deconstructing Harry. Just deconstructing Harry. Um, I do think that's one of the better late Woody Allen movies. Uh, they just ran into the mat and Ben Buzzsaw. Yeah. This movie made. Uh, they made it for. I had it for a fifteen million dollar budget. You had twenty five. Oh, uh, uh, I, I that, that you you were probably right. Made forty three point one million. Our guy Raj. Yeah, tri- I know it tripled what it cost. So yeah, that makes sense. Our guy Raj, four stars. Yeah. The sweep and variety of the characters have brought the movie comparisons to Robert Altman's Nashville and The Player. There's also some of the same appeal in Pulp Fiction in scenes that balance precariously between comedy and violence. Through all the characters and all the action, Anderson's screenplay centers on the human qualities of the players. Boogie Nights has the quality of many great films in that it always seems alive. I think that's fair. It's a good review. That's a good, good way to put it. This movie always seems alive. Speaking of alive, should we take most rewatchable scene to part two or do it now? I think part two. Let's do part two. All right. So we'll do all the categories in part two. Can I can I give you one quote from another review that I thought was really powerful? Yeah, let's hear it. Um, in the, Andrew Saris, who's one of the most important film critics of Bill's the, a big Saris guy. The mid-century, um, who like helps develop a lot of the ways that we talk about movies, wrote in a review of this movie out of the New York Film Festival, not since the mysteriously reclusive Terrence Malick Badlands 1973, has there been such an explosion of sheer talent on the American movie scene? He's talking about a couple of different people that are emerging there, but he's using this as the time to announce that, to kind of like codify that thing that you were talking about that's happening in the moment. That's big, big praise. He's the guy who like popularized our tour theory in America, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he's the person who's like the director is the author and in charge of creating the vision of Masterpiece. We left out one thing before we go to part two. And I, I should have done this sooner. How many lines popped out of this movie? I have the best lines quote. of carpet meth or lines of <laughs> no <laughs> well, cocaine lines, but the uh, oh, you think so, doctor? Like, there's a hundred of them. And when I was at ESPN.com, the, I had done this movie quote gimmick a couple times for my old website, and I think I think I had had I don't know I'd written a few columns for them, but not that many, and I did. I don't know, 33 quotes from Boogie Nights or 50 quotes from Boogie Nights, and I handed them out as awards. You really leaned on the Patrick Ewing Gold Club testimony. Oh, I, <laughs> I handed out the awards. <laughs> but what was hilarious was this was, I didn't have the editorial juice yet. Uh-huh. So they're doing these quotes, but they're editing the shit out of the quotes. So like, it's blank, quote, blank, blank, right? I like simple pleasures like dot, 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 lollipops in my mouth. That's just me. <laughs> That's just something I enjoy. That was one of the quotes. Um, uh, but it's all about the summer of 2001. And it's it's kind of hilarious because one, it's all these edited quotes and I don't have the leeway yet. Two, all that you just see how many fucking incredible quotes are just in this movie that House and I, House is my Boogie Nights friend. We've just said the quotes back and forth really for 25 years. We've done it on podcasts. I started calling him the Colonel at one point. Like <laughs> we, it's just been, this movie's been in our life with the one-liners forever. But then on top of it, it's the snapshot of 
the 2001 NBA That's season. That's amazing. You're when like, the like GM, GMs are all idiots. You have four Joe Smith categories. There's <laughs> 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 all these terrible signings. Yeah. Like Todd McCullough getting 60 million. So it, it's pretty funny reread. Oh, but um, it's a shot. Right yeah, there. sorry. Um, but that, but that's you have how, a Pat Croce one in there. I think I did. It's like it's like I. This is the curly he puts up the money for these pictures. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how many good quotes were in this movie. I was I like, I got to do the movie quotes gimmick for the ESPN audience. We'll see if it works, and it has to be Boogie Nights. I will what else say, would it be? for when Chris and I became friends in the 2000s, we definitely would like talk about these columns before we knew you. We were like, that's funny as shit when you would do that. <laughs> the movie quotes. Yeah, there's certain movies that just, this have it, but this one we'll go into in part two. So when part two, we're hitting all the categories and it's probably going to be two hours. I'm sorry, this is... It's your birthday. This, this movie has this. This has to be a two part podcast. It has to go for. You three like and lollipops hours. in your mouth. It's I okay. do. It's you like cinema. Like. You know, in it's particular, like. you like to watch people fucking on film. That's that's just me. Uh, this was produced by Craig Horlbeck. Thanks to Dylan Berkey as well, and we'll be back for part two of the Boogie Nights Pod that will be up pretty much right after this one. <laughs> <laughs>